0: Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Bull vs. Bear podcast. I'm Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor. As the name suggests, this is where we get two people to argue the bull case and the bear case for a company. And today we're talking about fever tree drinks. On the bull side, we have Richard Watts, Manager of the Merion UK Midcap Fund. Hi Richard, how are you doing? Yeah, very good, thank you. And on the bear side, we have Julia Forshaw, Specialist Writer at the IC and covers consumer goods. Julia, how are you doing? Good, Taha. So, Fever Tree Drinks, some basic outlook, is a premium brand of mixers, generally tonic, ginger ale, dark mixers, um, available on trade in pubs and bars, but also in shops. The company launched in 2005, IPO'd in 2014 at £1.65, and now has a share price of £26.84. pence. So PubCos have been asked whether they're willing to pay premium for Fevertree in their gin and tonics, and they've said yes, uh, but investors are being asked the same. Revenue from full year 2016 to full year 2018 increased 131%, with net profit up 117%, but the drink maker currently trades around 52 times forwards earnings, which is quite hefty. So Richard, you bought Fevertree in 2016. It made, what, nearly 200% on that?
1: Yeah, so uh, our small cap funds actually bought in at IPO which would have been before that. So I think the IPO price was uh, in the region of 130, 140p. So, you know, versus IPO, we've made a lot more as a team. Uh, I bought in uh, circa 2016. Uh, at a share price in the region of 700 pence. So, um, so yeah, look, it's been a pretty good return for us. Cool. And it's uh, still a top 10 holding in your fund, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's just probably just outside the top 10, but, you know, they're there about, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, Julia,
0: is, uh, is it fair to say you're a bull-turned bear? Is that is that reasonable?
2: I think, looking at the company, um, I mean, it's clearly a quality company, well-run, um, great product, but just the shares at the moment are just so expensive, and I think so much of it is hinging on this U.S. expansion, which... I think is going to be if they're kind of pricing it in that it's going to replicate the uk i think that's going to be quite tough to achieve okay
0: uh well let's, let's kick it off um so yeah richard exactly as to julia's points how do you answer that it's a, it's a big price to be paying for a company yeah. isn't it
1: yeah look i think we recognize that the you know the very near term valuation multiple is expensive you know it's been expensive for you know as long as we've held the stock actually and you know it does reflect an expectation of continued strong earnings growth and you know very positive earnings momentum uh, and I think for us, you, you know, the investment thesis is kind of morphing from, you know, a business that's done incredibly well in the UK to one that has the potential to do very well in the US and not just the US, but other international markets also. And really, you can justify the valuation multiple by, you know, by looking out far enough and you know, continuation of that earnings growth will rapidly bring that valuation multiple down.
0: Okay, Julia, what do you uh, what do you say to that? Do you think uh, the valuation multiple's fair if, if that happens?
2: I think it's just a, quite a big gamble, to be honest. And so far, it's done very well to grow in the UK. There's really no question about that. It's been very impressive. And so far, this growth hasn't come at the expense of profit margins. But when you look at the return on capital employed, it's been its, on its way down as they've been investing in con- customer credit, and they've got this swelling cash balance that's increasing its capital employed. So I think the big question is, can it continue to grow at this rate? And how much working capital investment is this really going to be needed?
0: Okay, uh, Richard, what was it? Um, that first attracted you to Fever Obviously, you mentioned that your your colleague. I'm guessing that was Nick Williamson for the UK smaller companies focus fund, isn't that right?
1: Or- yeah, that's right. And, you know, Nick is Nick has been the lead analyst on this stock for us uh, as a team, um, and, and I think really lucky. You know, if you go back a number of years, you know, we could see that you know the potential opportunity in the UK was very very large. Uh, it's certainly been the case that you know analysts on this stock. I mean, there only ever been about three or four analysts covering the stocks. So it's been you know, it's been pretty under research and, and quite frankly uh, the earnings forecasts in the market were you know ludicrously too low given the momentum that the business was seen in the uk and so it was that strong outperformance in the uk that's obviously driven um, the share price as strongly uh, as we've seen you know over the last few years and i think it's fair to say look you know it's not it's not new news right that the uk rate of growth is slowing i mean it shouldn't be unexpected you, know, you can 't expect a company to keep on you know growing u k sales at one hundred percent plus year after year you know just in terms of pound notes you know that base gets ever bigger so so for us you know we 've always realized that the rate of growth in the u k will start to slow so it 's not you know it 's not unexpected, but you know the opportunity we think of course is to not necessarily replicate what they've done in the UK. Uh, they don't need to replicate what they've done in the UK internationally, but just to sort of grow more quickly uh, and become a bit, you know, bigger business internationally could be very substantial.
0: Okay, I suppose that takes us neatly on to um, to the US. So, from from what I take of this stock, a lot of what's in the share price is based on this this US being a success, this UX expansion being a success story. So, it's um, it's signed some distributor agreements in the US. Um, I think last year. But yeah, so as I was saying, a lot of the share price is, is based on these future expected earnings. The UK is the largest market for the company, but the US seems like the biggest area of growth. I've just got some figures from Berenberg here. US uh, from twenty seven to 2018 increased 21%, but 2018 to 2019 forecasted to increase 25%, and then 2019 to 2020 increased by 32%. That's revenue figures. Julia, if they achieve these figures, these are pretty strong annual growth figures in terms of revenue. What's uh, what's the problem, isn't it? All fine and dandy?
2: Yeah, I mean, if they can achieve these um, as forecast, then yeah, it would be all fine and dandy. I just think that the US is going to be quite a tough market for them to crack, especially within the more of like the brown spirits market where you've got uh, these iconic brands like Pepsi and Coca-Cola that really have so much of the market share and such a strong following that I think potentially North Americans might be a bit more hesitant to kind of really, you know, it might be sort of a novelty to try something new, but it's not really going to replace these brands. It might be a slightly different story within Tonic. But again, Schweppes has a huge market share there. It's extremely popular. And so I think to be able to replicate, or at least come close to how the performance of Tree and how it really not has replaced Schweppes, but has taken a huge amount of its market share away, I'm just, I don't think that that's going to be able to be as successful in the US.
0: And what about the distribution? Because obviously, the thing that makes Vivitree unique in the world, well, not unique but different in the UK, is that it doesn't have its own distribution network, so it's kind of capital like. Can you think they rep- can replicate that in the US?
2: Yeah, through distribution system right now, I think it could be a bit of, again, quite challenging in the US because last time I spoke to them, um, at the moment, they're basically where it's manufactured with this third party manufacturer, it's done overseas and then it's shipped into the US, which makes, and it it's quite an expensive process, and at the moment, it seems like the retailers in North America are really passing that expense along to the customer, and in, for, in the form of quite expensive prices. There, like uh, I'm from Canada, and I was home at Christmas and saw Fever Tree tonic water on the shelf, and it was between seven and eight dollars, which for a little bottle of tonic uh, is it's quite expensive. When you look at Schweppes, and it's half the price or less, so. When I've spoken to them before, it's the management team, they've discussed maybe setting up some sort of third-party uh, manufacturer and distribution system within the U.S. to kind of cut that cost down. But there doesn't seem—it seems to be they kind of want to gain a bit more, more market share there first before they actually get those plans in motion.
0: Richard, so you cited the U.S. growth story as one of your bullet points. What do you would you make to kind of Julia's criticisms?
1: Yeah, and I think look, I think the starting point is to say that we don't need. Uh, fever tree to replicate the kind of success it's seen in the UK. You know, if you look at the tonic market, you know, per capita consumption of, this was gin and tonic, but gin, you know, it's about a third uh, of the level that it is in the UK. Uh, but also the population's that much bigger. So when you look at the mix of sales as well in the US, you know, as Julie said, you know, it is more of a dark spirit market out there. Uh, and you look at fever tree sales, you know, you know basically the gingers, you your know, ginger ale, ginger beer, about 40% of the U.S. sales, uh, in line with tonic, right? So tonic is about 40% as well. So you look at the opportunity, and I think potentially um, that per counter-consumption of gin and tonic is obviously lower, the fact that the population is so much greater, the fact that you've got this large opportunity in dark spirits or dark mixers, you know, we still think that the market opportunity in the, U- in the U.S. is four to five times the size that it is in the U.K., so that kind of means that you know they don't need to replicate the kind of success that you've seen in the UK. They, you know they could probably replicate ten to twenty you know, percent of the success that they've seen in the UK uh, for the US to be an extremely meaningful market. So, so I think for us, you know, that's the opportunity. I don't think we're arguing that you know um, Fever Tree will be as successful in America as it is here, but we think the market is big enough that you know moderate success there will be um, will be you know, extremely you know helpful for the share price.
0: Um, the, I know obviously they have um, kind of a growing area in Europe as well, but is that just kind of a, a steady ship, or is that something where you expect to see significant growth as well
1: yeah, and I think um, I think if we look at the second half of last year, I mean you know, European sales um, were you know, surprised us on the upside actually so look you know, the, the sales performance in Europe has been um, is variable i think it 's fair to say, but uh, that was pretty pretty strong in the second half of last year. Um, they changed the Spanish distributor. In 2018, I think they're on their third distributor there, and we think that could be that could be quite helpful. Um, Spain is a very large tonic market in Europe, so um, so again, it's a you know, potentially big market. So so, look, I think we'd expect you know European sales to you know, to grow very very strongly as well, and certainly outstrip what they're likely to you know deliver from here in the UK. So so, I think you know Europe is a big opportunity, and look, I, w- I would say as well, just in terms of the model, you know, this is an outsourced model. Um, you know, the company employ very few people. Um, you know, my last discussion, they probably employed you know forty people in the company, which is quite extraordinary, really. So exceptionally capital-light. And I think for us, you know, it was a sensible approach, right? You know, it was just mitigating risk. You know, you you basically you know you you build and grow a brand before you then make a decision about you know how you actually sort of manage the supply chain. And so, you know, I think finding a partner to to bottle the drinks in the US. Um, you know, I think actually that that won't be a difficulty. Um, you know, if the seals are there,
0: is there not um, a kind of a, a key supplier risk then? Do you, you not know, have that going on? They seem very concentrated and very kind of what well, they've got one 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 factory in the UK and things. So, yeah, yeah. Right.
1: You know, look, of course, you know, you c- of course there could be you know the potential of a short-term disruption um, with that one supplier. You know, but but I would say, look, this is not you know. You look at tonic. I mean, there are four ingredients, I think, in tonic. So. Um, yeah, you know, this is not a complicated thing, um to actually manufacture and um yeah, you know, I don't think that there would be an issue if they needed to get other suppliers here.
0: Okay. Um Obviously, we, we talked about Richard that um, you bought this stock in 2016. But I suppose my big question to you, given what we've talked about in terms of valuations, like would would you buy into this stock now? Do, do you think there's enough growth on the upside from where we are with the current share price to what your target is?
1: Well, look, if we didn't believe there was you know there, there was more upside to come uh, or no more upside to come, then then we look, we'd sell the stock quite simply. Um, look, I think it's fair to say, are we going to get the same kind of upside or return you know from this investment that we got when we bought in? Uh, all those years ago. I mean, you know, of course, the answer is no. Um, you know, it's been exceptional for us. But I think if you're prepared to look out you know, to 2022, um, you know, this this stock on consensus forecasts is trading in line with the likes of AG Bar. Uh, and I think I would argue that given the strength of brands, that given the potential growth opportunities in the US, uh, Europe and beyond, given the conservatism of the, you know, the forecast in the market, that just doesn't feel right to us. So the way we've uh, explained this to, to investors in the fund you know, is the upside, is the earnings growth, you know, will drive the performance of the share from here. You know, I expected a de-rate and on our numbers, you know, the valuation of the share is closer to 40 times in 2019 and then obviously falling pretty rapidly thereafter as the rate of growth comes through. I, I think, look, it's very, it's open to discussion, right, in terms of what is the right valuation multiple for this stock once it starts to go X growth. I think coming back to the likes of AG Bar um, and some of the bond proxies that you see across the market, you know, Diageo, and obviously it hasn't got the stable of brands that Diageo's got, but the stock market is quite happy to pay 20 to 25 times earnings for quite slow-growing brands. Given the potential, you know, M&A that surrounds this company, you know, in my view, you know, multiple of 25, maybe towards 30, is not unreasonable to pay for this company, uh, even with a much slower rate of growth. So I would say... You know, if you can you know if you can see that kind of multiple um coming through over the next few years then you know the incremental growth opportunity over and above that you know as as time goes on and in the outer years is really what's going to drive the share price in our view okay
0: julia you've been doing some work on fundamentals versus share price what's your what's your take on that
2: mm-hmm. i mean based on estimates um you can kind of determine that around 3 quarters um of the share price right now is based on future growth expectations so i mean that's a huge room for like huge amount of room for error and so I think there's just so much downside risk that if they even just miss expectations slightly, that we could really see the shares punished for it. Even back when they reported um, in March, they, uh, they uh, beat analyst expectations and the shares still fell 7% on the day. So it just seems like there's so much exposure there to, uh, yeah, even just a slight slip up can really do a lot of harm for the share price.
0: I suppose, yeah, Richard, that's, isn't that a, a good point? Like, you know, a share price should be kind of earnings, future earnings expectations minus the risk of that being wrong. Has, has the share price factored the
1: risk in? I mean... Yeah, and I like think like these are always sort of subjective debates, right? But... Yeah, I suppose Julia's assertion that seventy-five percent of the share price, I think, is in future growth, and you know, it, it just depends. You know, it just you know, look like in my view, right? If the, if this was a very low-growing business, you'd pay twenty to twenty-five times, right, for this stock, and maybe towards thirty. We call it twenty-five. You know, on our numbers, this is closer to forty for two thousand and nineteen. So on that basis, probably less than half of the value of the share is in that future growth. And I think our confidence in that future growth is very high because, you know, whilst the UK is slowing, it's still going to grow very, very strongly. At current rates of growth from the AC Nielsen data is grown at twenty five to thirty percent and look, it's gonna slow as the year goes on, but you know, it's gonna take a number of years, we think, before it gets down to five, uh, in the UK, but it will get there eventually. And in the meantime, of course, that so you make an acceleration in growth in the US and Europe and other international markets. So about fifty percent of sales at the moment are from those international markets. So you know, if you get rates of growth there of 30, 35, 40% a year for as far as the eye can see, I mean, this business is going to grow very, very strongly. So I would say it's not unreasonable um, that half of the value potentially of this business is in that future growth because you can unwind that very, very rapidly.
0: Is there a a kind of cyclical risk here, though? I mean, it's a premium product, right? Is there not a substitute product risk?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's probably kind of, you know, it's probably product risk as opposed to cyclical risk. I mean, I think we kind of like the fact that, you know, people's sort of consumption of, um, I suppose, alcohol and, you know, just kind of drinking out uh, generally is perceived to be very defensive, actually. Uh, you look at the pub companies, um, you know, always seem to be very defensive in a recessionary environment. So I don't think it's cyclical risk per se in terms of economic sensitivity. You know, it, it could be sort of, you know, um, risk in the sense of, you know, does another brand come along and, you know, usurp fever tree? and and I think, look, you know, of course it's a potential. I mean, you fever Tree did it at Schweppes. And, yeah, look, I think, again, thinking about that opportunity or how it came about in the UK, I think, you know, Schweppes was just a very um, badly managed brand, you know, reflecting disparate ownership structures, you know, different owners in the UK, a different owner in the Europe and a different owner in the US. And, you know, not particularly joined up in terms of uh, marketing um, the brand and, and I think just the quality of the product as well. You know, it just didn't adapt to the fact that, the actual spirit market was you know, was being driven by, you know, premiumisation and at the end of the day if you're, you know, spending a lot of money on a premium spirit, you you, you wouldn't actually mix it with with a premium mixer and so, look, uh, you know, they saw that opportunity. The UK did fantastically well as a result of it. Um, so there is, of course, always the risk that someone else comes along and tries to replicate their success. But I think it's going to be that much harder because the opportunity for a new a new upstart is just that much more difficult because Fevertree occupies that ground today. Okay. Okay. Um-
0: very compelling points. Uh, Juliet, there's obviously a lot of people supporting this stock. Um, you look at analyst notes, prices, target prices are significantly higher, some around the £40 mark. Um, so people seem pretty confident that Fevertree can, can see this expected growth and then some. What What are your reasons that you think could upset this?
2: I mean, it's just the delivery on these expectations, really. It's like, if even in the UK, they seem to be, not meet, perhaps meeting saturation, but they have such a large market share at this point, it's going to be hard to grow it much more. And you get competitors coming in that are sort of trying to replicate its success, like something like a Fentiman's tonic. And that's starting to pop up a lot more. So that's kind of something to be cautious about. And even even its existing sales sales growth seems to come from a very narrow base, being mainly the UK and mainly tonic. And given the kind of I don't know, risks in the US that this they might not be able to pull it off as well as they have in the UK and in Europe. I think it's perhaps I'm not so much bearish as I am just very, very cautious that these are quite lofty goals to be able to achieve. One point to kind of consider as well, I suppose, it's not necessarily a red flag, but just one point for consideration, is that the two founders, uh, Tim Murillo and Chris uh, Charles Rolls, seem to pop up in our director's deals uh, section reasonably often selling shares. And the reasoning behind it is always that they want, they need to meet institutional demand, but at the same time, it's founders selling quite large amounts of shares. So, could be not necessarily a red flag, but just something for existing shareholders to be aware of.
0: One to watch, I suppose. Well, um, what do you what do you make of the, the shareholder base, Richard? Obviously, it's quite institutionalized. Um, the FVT shareholder base is that is there a risk there in terms of someone actually going, "Well, we've we've met our target price, we're we're done now." You know, you said exactly as you said that if you didn't see upside, you'd pull out straight away.
1: Yeah, look, I think that's always the risk of any share. You know I think we we operate in a part of the market that that is you know very institutionalized and um, you, you know this is a feature of of any stock that we own in the portfolio so so look for us i mean it 's about doing our work right and believing uh, in our investment thesis and um, and if we believe there's upside and, you know, the company is performing, you know, in a way where, you know, it's matching or exceeding our expectations, then, you know, you know frankly, um, you know, what other people decide to do is um, is obviously their business. But um, but look, we need to be on top of the investment thesis and, and ensuring that the company is actually delivering to, to our, you know, to our expectations. Okay. And that's how we've always operated on the team. You know, we've been and doing this a long time.
0: Any final points, Julia, to
1: make?
2: Um, uh, I mean, just really in sum, I think like there's no denying that it's a great company. The product is great. It's well managed. It's a really sensible and interesting business model. But I think just given the quite lofty valuation, there's just so much room for downside that I think, uh, yeah, again, not so much of a bearish uh, perspective as just one uh, that's very cautious.
1: Anything to add, Richard? Yeah, look, I think we just need to recognise that the growth opportunity here is is substantial. Um, you know, in the U.S., they've signed that deal, you know, with the number one distributor in the U.S. in 29 states around America. Um, you look at the second half of last year, the U.S., you know, might have only grown, you know, 21%, but, you know, management confidence to upgrade growth expectations at 25% this year uh, and north of 30% next year. And this was a question, you know, why is that? And, you know, it, it simply goes back to that, dis- you know, distribution agreement, you know, the number one distributor in the U.S., you're actively promoting and pushing your products through the channel um, is 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 a is a very powerful thing.
0: Okay, great, thanks for that. Well, definitely some interesting points to consider there. Um, so, really strong businesses, I think we all agree on, very innovative in terms of business model, um, but of course, that could be quite a high price. Richard, thank you for your time. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this Investors Chronicle Bull versus Bear podcast. Uh, for more on Free treat, please head to the website or pick up a copy of the magazine. Thank you for listening.